You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Mean O Lion Media presents Pregnancy Pearls. Meet Dr. Nicole Plenty, a double board certified OBGYN and high risk pregnancy expert. She's brilliant, well researched, and feisty. Growing tired of seeing complications of pregnancy that could have been prevented, she wanted a way to empower women through knowledge because, as she says, all doctors aren't created equal. This quest to educate women birthed this podcast, Pregnancy Pearls, with Dr. Plenty. Thanks for listening to Pregnancy Pearls with me, Dr. Nicole Plenty. Today, we're going to talk about a not-so-pleasant subject, and that is sexually transmitted diseases or infections. Yep, unfortunately, I have received a couple of questions about this, so I thought I should do a show about this just to break down anything that you might have as a misconception in your mind. So, STDs or sexually transmitted diseases is what they used to be called. Now they're sexually transmitted infections or STIs. They are on the rise lately. So as of 2016, um, they are on the rise and they continue to be on the rise with the three most common being human papillomavirus or HPV, chlamydia and trichomoniasis. According to the CDC, on any given day in 2018, one in five people in the U.S. had an STI. Just really think about that and let that sink in for a second. That's nearly 68 million people that had an STI on any given day in 2018. So if you happen to have sex with a couple of people, nine times out of 10, you might, if you did not protect yourself, have come in contact with an STD. So just make sure you're protecting yourself. Half of these infections are in those 15 to 24 years of age. That equates to about $16 billion in direct medical costs with more than $1 billion used for curable diseases like gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. $13.7 billion was attributed to HIV alone and the complications of HIV. You might already know that STIs like gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis can lead to problems with scarring in the fallopian tubes and pelvic inflammatory disease, which can cause infertility. But some STIs, if contracted during pregnancy, can also lead to some serious issues with your unborn baby. Gonorrhea and chlamydia have been associated with an increased risk of stillbirth and preterm delivery. They can also be transferred through the birth canal and can cause congenital eye infections and blindness. Syphilis, if untreated, can result in mental and physical problems with your baby. Congenital syphilis can cause caused by a spirochete, um, treponeum pallidum, usually presents weeks to months after delivery and is characterized by hearing loss because of damage to the eighth nerve, interstitial keratosis, which just means corneal scarring or scarring of your eyes, small teeth called Hutchinson's teeth, and a saddle nose, frontal bossing or protruding upslanting forehead, and swelling of the joints. HPV, the most common STI, is associated with cervical cancer for the high-risk strains. Low-risk strains can cause genital warts. So we're talking about HPV 6, 
8, 11, those are your lower risk strains versus 31, 33, 45. Those are your higher risk strains that can cause cervical cancer. So if your baby comes in contact with genital warts itself, meaning you've had an outbreak in the vaginal canal, those warts can develop actually in the baby's oral cavity and throat. So genital warts can also obstruct the birth canal and they should either be resected or Sometimes they grow back after resection, and that would mean you need a C-section. Genital herpes can cause miscarriage in the first trimester and neonatal congenital herpes if contracted in the second or third trimester. Babies can be born with herpetic blisters, which can cause permanent scarring. These babies are also at risk for vision problems due to damage of the optic nerve or the nerve that supplies your eye, one of them anyway, and the retina and cause neurological issues and developmental delay. Another STD, which people don't think of as a sexually transmitted disease or infection, is hepatitis B. And it doesn't cause birth defects, but it can cause chronic hepatitis B and liver damage in a baby if it's not treated promptly after delivery. So if a mom has chronic hepatitis B, and we have a lot of people that may have chronic hepatitis B, which um, usually you may not even know it unless you get liver damage, but it can Cross basically cross the placenta or the baby can get it in the birth canal. And um, usually those babies get what's called Hbig or hepatitis B immunoglobulin right after delivery uh, and the hepatitis B vaccine series is started to prevent chronic hepatitis B. The next STD, trichomoniasis, can also cause preterm delivery, low birth weight, but no known birth defects. HIV can affect both your immune system and your baby's immune system. If the baby gets HIV, it does not cause birth defects. So I know that that was a question. It does not cause birth defects, but it can be associated with an increased risk of growth restriction. And some of the medications that you're on may attribute to birth defects as well. And if you have HIV with a viral load that's higher than a thousand, then that's when your baby's at a higher risk of contracting HIV. And then a C-section will be warranted to reduce your baby's risk of the transmission of HIV. The good thing is that most of these diseases are curable. And even if you get the STI, you and your provider can take steps to reduce your baby's risk of a congenital infection. So now we're going to talk through some cases. Our first case is a 21-year-old who is 36 weeks pregnant with her first child. She was recently diagnosed with genital herpes and was told that she might need to deliver via C-section. So she presents for a second opinion. This is her first outbreak. She has a few lesions on the outside of her vagina, on her labia, and one that she knows of in her vaginal canal. She is taking Valtrex. If the lesions disappear, can she still deliver vaginally? So it really depends on when she delivers um, and if the lesions completely crust over and completely disappear. Now, I'm usually in the train of thought that if you're in doubt or you have any symptoms at all, which usually means that you need to be treated a complete two weeks um, after you have an outbreak, then you need a C-section, right? Especially if you have a lesion in the vagina or the labia. Because if that baby comes into contact with those herpetic lesions, then your baby can get congenital blindness or herpes encephalopathy. And you don't want a baby that has developmental delay or uh, herpes pneumonia or you know congenital blindness just because you want to avoid a c-section the right treatment is valtrex or valacyclovir or acyclovir and 
you have to compl- com- like finish that complete course before you proceed with the vaginal delivery and have no symptoms. So if you have any itch in the vagina, if you have any tenderness from a lesion, you should not deliver vaginally. I'm sorry. Um, you have to deliver via C-section um, to prevent these complications. And then let's think about this. I know that nobody wants a C-section, right? But you want to make sure you're being the safest that you possibly can be. Um, you are more likely to have transmission and, and a longer outbreak being that it's, the, it's a primary outbreak, meaning it's the first time you've actually had a lesion. You've, the first time you've been diagnosed. Uh, most people only get one or two outbreaks in their whole lifetime, okay? So it doesn't mean that you have to have C-sections with all of your pregnancies. You can have a a trial labor after C-section if your OB will allow that. But if those lesions are there, you don't need to lie about it. You need to say, I still have symptoms down there. Make sure your OBGYN does a really good exam on the exterior of your vagina, meaning the labia, the vulva, and also in the vagina. Now, if you're and the cervix, a lot of people don't check the cervix to make sure there are no visible lesions with on with uh, within the vagina and on the cervix. You need to make sure that it's not on the cervix because those lesions can hide there, and that is a reason that. I have seen babies in the NICU for a long period of time because of these congenital infections. So you don't want that to happen. But um, if it's if you happen to have a lesion that is on the inner thigh, okay, you can basically cleanse yourself and have your um, OB cover that with like a tegaderm or um, basically a big Band-Aid so that the baby does not come in contact within the birth canal. So technically speaking, that is an option. But for me, if you were my patient, if you had one on the thigh, I would still recommend a C-section because I don't want to take that kind of risk putting the baby at risk for even touching a lesion if it's on your inner thigh. Now, mind you, the chance of you, your baby getting a congenital infection if you have a lesion on the thigh is about 2%. It's super low, but why take the risk at all? So let's just see if your lesions go away. If you're delivering at 40 weeks or so, yes, you can still deliver vaginally as long as there are no symptoms and no lesions. The case pearl. Active lesions on the vulva or vagina always require a C-section to prevent congenital herpes. Medical intern, our second case. The second case is a 31-year-old who is 29 weeks pregnant with her fourth child. She has a history of syphilis diagnosed eight months ago and treated with penicillin. Her initial titer was 1 in 256. After her initial treatment, her titer dropped to 1 in 8. Her OBGYN tested her again this month and her titer was 1 in 32. She has the same sexual partner who is her husband of two years. They were both treated eight months ago. Her OBGYN referred her for an ultrasound and consultation for new infection versus persistent infection. Okay, so it seems as if um, you were probably improperly treated or you have a poor response to the treatment. So when we talk about um, syphilis, this is very, very treatable. So there's really no reason that we should not have adequate treatment of syphilis. So two commonly used non-treponemal tests. So there's a treponemal test and there's a non-treponemal test. So we usually follow non-treponemal tests, which are the Venereal Disease Research Laboratory or VDRL 
and your rapid plasma reagent or RPR test. And a lot of people have heard of RPRs, RPRs, but the VDRL is also what we follow. One or the other, they're not interchangeable, okay? There are false positive reactions that can occur just because of pregnancy in general. If you have an autoimmune disease, you're more likely to get a false positive. And infections, um, you are more likely, other infections, you are also more likely to get a false positive. So your non-treponemal um, tests usually are positive in 75% of cases of primary syphilis. Secondary syphilis is always characterized by reactive v VDRL and with a titer greater than 1 to 16. The titer of antibodies reflects disease activity. So if you have a fourfold decrease in your titer, this suggests that you've been adequately treated, while a fourfold increase indicates that you haven't been adequately uh, treated and you have active disease. So for our patient that went from 1 in 256 to 1 in, full, 1 in 8, that is a fourfold decrease. So it means that you were likely adequately treated. But now, months down the line, we have a 1 in 32 titer, which is a fourfold increase, which means that you likely have had another infection. So this doesn't seem like it's a persistent infection. It seems like it's probably a new infection because you had an adequate drop and now you have an adequate rise. Regardless, even if it's under treatment, because you can get that drop with, with one dose of penicillin let's say you didn't finish your course, then regardless, it doesn't matter if it's new or persistent, you still need to be retreated because your titer has increased by fourfold. So you still got the same risk. So I would argue that you need to be treated with penicillin. You're going to do a load followed by 2.5 million units. You can give that weekly for three weeks. You need to get treated. You got to suck it up and go get the penicillin done. Okay. So after about a year, your non-treponemal tests are going to become negative if you've received adequate treatment for primary syphilis. After two years, you should be negative for secondary syphilis. So that's why the test is not going to be negative. That's why you have to follow titers to see if you're acutely infected or not. Okay, And so since you got pregnant within eight months of that test, that's why we have to follow the titers. In a small percentage of patients, this low positive titer will persist um, even if you received adequate therapy. But we don't expect it to rise by fourfold, which means active infection. So anytime you have that rise at all, some people don't even follow fourfold. I don't. If you're pregnant, I might as well retreat you because I don't want to run the risk of congenital syphilis. Then yes, fourfold increase or any increase in pregnancy, you would need to be retreated. So most patients who have a reactive treponemal test, so not the non-treponemal test, the treponemal test will have reactive tests for the remainder of their life, regardless if they have treatment or not. So the treponemal test, although we use it to confirm whether or not you have, um, you have syphilis or not, because like we said before, like I said before, your VDRL and your RPR are your non-treponemal tests. Remember we said that they can be positive if you have the autoimmune disease, other infections, so you have these false positives. Well, you're gonna go and confirm it with your treponemal test. But once you have a confirmed test, you can't retest with the treponemal test because it'll be positive. We know it's gonna be positive. So the only thing we can do is follow the titers. Now, if your titers are high for years and years and years, then you need to be cultured to figure out if there's some type of resistance going on there, but penicillin is still the mainstay. So what happens if you're allergic to penicillin? You in pregnancy get desensitized to penicillin. We 
put you in the hospital, we watch you, and we still give you penicillin because that is the treatment of choice in pregnancy to prevent congenital syphilis. So even if that means you have to go to the ICU and get Benadryl, that's what we're going to treat you with. The highest risk of congenital infection is usually due um, is usually due to a primary or secondary syphilis infection. Tertiary syphilis usually presents three to 15 years after the initial infection, and that's characterized by these gumas, which are dead, swollen, fiber-like tissue that's seen in the liver, and it's also characterized by neurosyphilis, and it's characterized by cardiac problems. And we know this because of the Tuskegee studies, right, with neurosyphilis and things like that, with long-standing syphilis. So hopefully, we don't have to see that in pregnancy. And honestly, I've only seen gumas in pregnancy once <laughs> as a fellow I saw that and it was um it was pretty impressive um but that's not what you have to deal with you've only been positive for uh, eight months at most the thing is you just get retested case pearl untreated syphilis can cause congenital syphilis as well as late term stillbirth in 30 to 40 percent of patients 60 percent of babies with congenital syphilis are asymptomatic at birth so it is crucial to get treated if your titles are rising and let me go back I know that this listener is saying, or this doctor that sent this listener's uh, question in is saying that she's been with the same person for two years, so she can't possibly have gotten a new infection. But if you guys are not treated at the same time and abstaining from sexual intercourse during the treatment and making sure that the lesions are gone in both parties, then you could have reinfected yourself. It's very it's very common for couples to reinfect themselves. The The wife goes and gets treated. She thinks she's good for two weeks, but the husband didn't start treatment for, for another week and a half. And then they have sex and he's not completely treated all the way. And so you're, re, you're reinfecting yourself. And so it starts to cycle over of being infected and infected again and again. So it doesn't mean that necessarily anybody's cheated. Okay. But it does mean that if you are both being faithful, then you likely have reinfected yourself and, and that's why your titers are rising again. Do we have any email cases today? Yes, we have one. It says, Dr. Plenty, I'm HIV positive, but my family doesn't know about it. The father of my child knows my status. He is HIV negative and very supportive. I'm 34 weeks pregnant with my first child and am embarrassed. Every time I go to the doctor's office, I'm asked about my HIV medicine and symptoms. I had to go to the hospital for contractions a few weeks ago. My mother brought me there. After I was admitted, my mom was brought back to the room. I recall the nurse hanging AZT and my mom asking her what she was hanging. The nurse paused and looked at me and then told my mom that they were fluids to keep me hydrated. I'm afraid that my next nurse won't be as discreet. I think I'm going to refuse AZT because I don't want my family to know about my status. What will happen if I don't take AZT during delivery? Ooh, okay, so the short answer is it depends on what your viral load is. Everything is based on your viral load with HIV. But let me, let me reassure you, like for us as providers, HIV is just like having high blood pressure or diabetes. Like it's nothing that you need to be ashamed of. Um, there are people that get these health conditions that just honestly have bad luck. And I can't say that, and I don't know why you got HIV, 
But I don't want you to think if you had sex and it was sexually contracted that, you know, you're a bad person or you're promiscuous because, I mean, most people have had more than one sex partner in their life. And if that sex partner happened to have HIV and not disclose it or didn't know it and then you got HIV, I mean, sometimes it's just the luck of the draw. So I don't want you to feel ashamed if you're HIV positive, because for us as healthcare providers, that is just another disease. It's another disease that's, that we treat um, often. But I do get you wanting to keep your health information private. And as healthcare professionals, we are obligated to keep your health information private. So unless you tell your nurse, hey, I'm okay with my family knowing my status, they will not talk about your status in front of your family. We legally have to ask the family to get out of the room when we're taking a medical history. So if you, when you're checked in, if you have your medical history taken, make sure you just tell the nurse, hey, I don't want my family to know about my HIV status. And if you, they'll ask if you're the father of the child knows, because legally, if the father of the child does not know, we have to report that because that could mean that this sex partner is at risk for something life threatening. But if you tell us that the father of the child knows and it's okay to talk in front of him, then that's all that matters. And from, from my perspective, the only thing that does matter is that you know you're protecting yourself now and the father of the baby knows and he's protecting himself. And we are seeing more and more discordant couples getting pregnant. And as long as you're safe by doing that, while you do that, then more power to you. And if you're listening and you're like, how do discordant patients get pregnant? Well, it's called, you know, sperm washing and um, intrauterine insemination is usually how we do that. I'll have to do a whole episode on that because it can be quite complicated. But there is a way for people that are discordant and cup in terms of status, meaning HIV positive, have a baby by an HIV negative person, and that person take prophylactic medicine and or get sperm washing um, to get pregnant. So we'll talk about that in a different episode, but. As long as you guys are being safe and you've disclosed that and been responsible, that's all that matters. Your family does not have to know. So that nurse was discreet because she has to be discreet. If she didn't know whether you wanted your family or not uh, to know or not, then she could not tell your family. It can be fluids all day. We can even take labels off the bag or use another label and code it a different way just in case you have family members that are in the healthcare field so that they don't know what we're hanging. Because people do tend to ask questions whenever you're in labor because they want to know what is she getting that's going to affect the baby um, so we get that and we are very committed as healthcare providers to keeping your information 100 percent private what happens if you decide to refuse azt well if your viral load is under a thousand then it really is optional to give you azt anyway because the risk of transmission is very 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 low to a baby if your viral load is between undetectable and less than a thousand if your viral load is over a thousand, that means that you definitely need three hours of AZT infusion. You need a two gram, um, uh, two grams per kilogram IV load, followed by one gram per kilogram per hour for three hours before you deliver. And you need to deliver um, via C-section because the risk of transmission is really high. So if you get AZT and your viral load is over a thousand, then your risk of transmission is less than two percent to the baby. But if you don't get AZT, and you deliver it, then the risk of transmission to your baby is around 25% or even more, depending on how high your viral load is. So it is not smart to refuse AZT. 
And the good thing is in the pandemic, you probably won't be allowed to have your family members in there anyway. It'll probably be you and the father of the baby. There are very few hospitals that are allowing more than one visitor at this point. And if you don't want your family members to be in there, then they don't have to be in there. And if you do want the support of, let's say, your mom, but you don't want her to know what you have, then you just make sure the nurses are being very discreet and you tell them that you don't want your family members to know. And most of the time, if your OBGYN comes in, we already know to ask your family members to step out while we ask personal questions. So my thoughts are, please do not, please don't refuse AZT if your viral load is high, okay? You're 34 weeks, so you have time to get your viral load down. So if you're compliant with your heart therapy or your medications for HIV, then you can get to the point where your viral load is undetectable before you're even full term. But if you're not, if you have some resistant strain, please, please take the AZT. And for me, even with patients that have undetectable viral loads, I've just seen so many things happen with people that skip medicines and their viral load is non-detectable or less than 20. And then a couple weeks later it's back up because they've missed medicines that I'm so paranoid that I give people AZT, even if they have low viral loads. And because I do not want to risk that baby getting HIV, getting congenital HIV. And that may be how you got HIV. It could be congenital HIV, but we don't want to risk your baby getting it. So please, please know that we respect your privacy and no provider is going to want to tell your family your business. So I think that that is all the questions we have. Is that right? Yes. Perfect. Well, thanks for listening to Pregnancy Pearls Podcast. I hope that you learned a little bit more about STIs in pregnancy from today's episode. And look, I know that nobody really wants to hear about STIs, but I think that knowledge is power. And we have to know what our risks are, especially if you may have had a sexually transmitted disease or you may be thinking about not getting tested or, or not getting treated because of some, some myth that you've heard. So I'm glad that we cleared that up. If you've been listening and uh, you know that I'm a co-author and the book, uh, The Chronicles of Women in White Coast, Volume 3, um, will be released at the end of this month. And I'd love for you to support. So follow me on IG to find out how you can purchase it. If you or someone you know has had a pregnancy complication or a unique situation, let me know about it. Email me at PregnancyPearls at gmail.com to hear your topic or case discussed on one of our podcast episodes. Also, remember to follow me on Instagram at Pregnancy underscore Pearls and Facebook at Pregnancy Pearls. And make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel, which is YouTube.com forward slash Pregnancy Pearls with Dr. Plenty for more quick talks about pregnancy complications. In closing, remember to advocate for yourself. You are your biggest advocate and no one knows what's going on with your body except for you. Thanks for listening. Bye. Pregnancy Pearls is hosted by Dr. Nicole Lee Plenty. Produced by Nicole Plenty and Janine Brunson Johnson. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find Pregnancy Pearls on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and rate. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice for diagnosis or treatment of individual medical conditions. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with specific questions regarding a medical condition. Pregnancy Pearls is a mean old lion media production. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. 
Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.